I was actually thinking about it when I was reading over all those names this week. And I was like, man, I wonder, uh, I wonder what a teacher feels like the first day those kids come back. You know, you got to call roll a couple names. That, now, hopefully they weren't this mad, but a couple names you're like, oh, I hope I'm going to say it right so I don't embarrass them, you know, and don't want to be mad at me. And, and you learn. So I'm not going to say any of those names because I can barely say Bob, Rob, and Joanne, right? Um, so there's no need to try, uh, try any of those. But I do want to start with a question to get you guys thinking. Are you living your life? Because what this is, as it lists all those names, what this is, is it's telling you how Solomon was applying all that wisdom that we talked about he got last week. So what I, so what I want to know is, are you living to its fullest potential? Are you happy with the way things are right now? Would you be happy if they were to write a chapter four about all your accomplishments and what you did? And in chapter nine, that means no. And in chapter nine and in chapter 10. Cause I go ahead, I go ahead and tell you, I, I am going to use a couple other chapters, uh, this morning to, to kind of stay with this theme of, of wisdom that gets known worldwide. This, this is Solomon's moment of, of his fullest potential and, and he decides by the way he's going to use what God has blessed him with. And so do you. You got to decide. Are you using everything God's blessed you with, you know, to the fullest potential? Or are you using what possibly God could bless you with to the fullest potential? There was a, a lawyer up in New York and, he was about 80 and he had never lost a case and he had this giant firm and the young guys were coming in and they were kind of trying to, trying to push him out. So, so he sells his, his firm to these guys and he goes and starts another one and one of the business magazines were asking, man, what, what made you want to start another law firm at 80 years old? And, and, and he goes, well, I was just, I was just doing what I love doing. And he said, well, why didn't you just stay where you were? And he says, I wasn't dying fast enough for those guys. Oh, uh, you know, they wanted to, to work their way up. So, so in doing this, the very first case he takes, a lady has a husband who is 71 years old, gets hit by a, an officer actually of the, of the county, not on duty, but he was drinking and driving. And, and so she takes him to court and she's going to sue. You're going to get lots of legal stuff, by the way, uh, now that my wife is there. So it's, it's just a new thing I'm with. Oh, uh, so, so she, she, he's 71, he dies and, and she takes him to the court and, and, and they go to the, the first, first, you won't get none of the right wording of, of legal terms. Uh, you just get the story. So, you know, she ta- he takes him to the, to the first thing. She says, I want a million dollars. And he said, well, what, what justification do you think you have for a million dollars? And she goes, because of the potential he had to earn for the rest of his life. What well, a lawyer instantly for the, for the county stands up and goes, ma'am, he was 71 years old. We are, we are terribly sorry that, that you've lost, uh, your husband and a loved one, but there's no way he was going to make a million dollars with the time that he had remaining. So they, they break apart and, and she goes and she hires this, this 80 year old lawyer that I've forgotten the name of, so I apologize. But, but she hires him and, uh, and he takes the case and he walks into the courtroom and as soon as he walks into the courtroom, the other side says, hold on, we would like to have, so they have this, this meeting anyway, they settle instantly. Uh, because of this guy's reputation, you know, he, he, in 80 years, he hadn't lost a case. I mean, this guy was awesome and this lady was smart enough to hire him and, and, and he hadn't stopped. So my question is, some of us, have we stopped too early for what God's blessed us to use? And, and, and one thing I want us to understand, I was so excited I got this. And, and the main theme of these chapters, I'm sharing it with Crystal Friday, I think, because I shared it with the kids on Thursday anyway. And I'm telling you, like, this, this whole chapter is about Christians need to get in the world and start doing things in the world. And instead of just doing stuff in the church and, and, and impacting everything, government, health care, the legal field. And, and I'm going on and on. I'm so excited about it. And she goes, yeah, that's what Bonhoeffer said. Bonhoeffer's much older than me, much older than any of you. 
And I paused for a minute. I'm like, well, I'm no Bonhoeffer, but at least I figured out what the chapter was talking about. So, <laughs> so that's where I want us to go. If you got your Bibles, it should be open. Again, we are going to jump into chapter 9 and chapter 10 uh, just for some lessons God's got for us in it. Uh, but I want us to look at this. So last week, if you missed it, Solomon gets a dream from God. God says, I'm going to give you one wish. You know, basically, I'm going to give you one request. Uh, I, I don't like to look at it as a wish, but, but anyway. So Solomon requests wisdom. God says, I, I like your motive behind this. It's, it's not selfish. It's for the people. It's for my kingdom. It's for me. So not only am I going to bless you with wisdom, I'm going to bless you with riches beyond you could ever have thought of since you didn't ask for them. So, so we, we get that. Chapter 4, we get the, the reward of, of what he's blessed with, which we're going to go through here in, in just a second. The people and the things and the area and, and all this stuff. And we also get the way he's using this wisdom. You know, this isn't just a giant list of names that none of you want to read except for Mitch. This has got huge implications behind the wisdom and what Solomon is using, what they got. Solomon is a genius knowing that he's got to select, train, empower, and supervise leaders to do the jobs at hand. Sometimes the greatest people just get in a heap of trouble because they want to do it all on their own. And when you begin to do it all on your own, stuff begins to get thinned out and it doesn't get done that well. You can't do everything as great as you can do one thing. You know, and Solomon realizes this, even as wise and as smart and as able as he was, he knew I've got to delegate some of my authority. So you could say it this way. A very simple lesson we get is that Solomon is a leader of leaders and no wise leader does it all by themselves. They don't. Solomon knew how to delegate responsibility. He knew who to who to go to to, to train and employ and get the job done. Uh, so verse one says this. I just want to point out one thing in verse one because it'll. It'll be something we see later. I don't think it's mentioned by accident either. King Solomon reigned over all of Israel. Now, when we read that, we're like, well, of course, he was he was Israel's king. Israel is not always going to be united. So when scripture makes a point to point out that here they're still united, that's kind of a significant thing just for us to understand because they will divide um, and they, they will begin to, to do more division into the future. So we need to understand Solomon's over this whole thing while they are one and united. And then you get to verse two and, and it lists all this stuff. And here's what we get. Solomon is organized. He's got design to this thing. And when we think about what Solomon asked, he said, man, I, I, God, I want your wisdom. I want your perspective on how to do things. And I want to do it and use it that way. God is a God of organization. He's a, he's a, he's a God of design. Do we understand that? Now, I, I know we're not. And if you look at a teenager's room, they probably even more resemble the fact that, that we're not of organization and design, but God is. And here's one of the, the simple lessons we get just at the very beginning of all this, this list of stuff is the wisdom has to be organized. And you can say it this way. Wisdom breeds organization. Organization breeds order and order breeds peace. Now, I don't know about you guys, but who could use some more peace in their life? Right? I think all of us would, would, would agree. Well, then we got to take it the opposite way. If we want peace, then we got to get order. If we want order, then we got to get organized. Nah, we don't like that part of it, though, do we? Look at what 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33 says. Speaking and describing God, Paul says this to the church. He says, since God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the churches and all the saints. So, so, it should be, so a church should be organized. Churches that aren't organized, they set a bad example for representing God. People, all the saints, people who aren't organized set a bad example for what God's spirit should be doing inside of us. God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. You remember at the very beginning of creation in Genesis, what does it say? Things were in chaos. 
I mean, you think about it, like all this stuff is just made and floating around or however you want to you want to picture it. And then it says this in, in, in the same beginning of Genesis. It says and God came in and brought order to the chaos. They go even a little deeper there and understand that some of the pagan pagans had a, had a God named chaos. And so it's almost like a like a stab from Moses at, at them saying God brought order to your God who is out of order. Uh, you know, but, but do we not need God to bring some order into our lives? I mean, anyway, God is not a God of disorder. He's a God of, of order and a God of, of peace. And if he's going to bring that kind of peace into us, we need to be representing it that way. When things are in order, we can like settle down. Right? May, us men aren't quite as bad as this. Some of us may be. You know, I'll say the same thing we're going to say on Wednesday night for the next who knows how many weeks. This doesn't apply to everybody when I say man or when I say woman. But it does apply to somebody in your relationship. Okay, so somebody in your relationship is generally the organized one. Am I right? Everything they do is organized. And if one thing gets out of organization, they get unsettled. They just get nervous. They don't like it. It it makes it go crazy. You realize we could just start our day with just a little bit of organization, like making the bed. You ever thought about it? What? How long does it take to make your bed? Five minutes. What size bed you got? She said five. Did you hear this? She said five minutes. To what are you like ironing the sheets and, and, and like measuring them to make sure that they're ready? And then, oh, you wipe them all down. Look at her, she's so serious. Say, like, yeah, I lice all everything and get rid of the COVID. If you slept on the COVID, you already got it. You don't have to wipe it away. It's already yours. You know what I'm how nasty must you be when you go to bed if you got to clean your sheets every morning? Man, I'm just kidding. Oh gosh. I'm going to have to talk to Danny about that. We're going to have to veto that idea, right? <laughs> All right, I'm not going to go with five minutes. I think even two minutes is a little long, but I'll take it because it sounds much better. I think I can make my bed in about 45 seconds, right? No, I'm going to time it tomorrow morning just to see for you guys. Now, mine's not pretty. They just pull sheets back, throw pillows on top, and that's about it, okay? You can't bounce no quarter off like some of you military guys and all that. But I'm thinking a couple minutes. You know how much nicer the room just looks though when the bed's made? Like you walk in at the end of the day and the bed's made. Boom. You know, and I've learned that. If you just clean one section of the, of the house, it makes a big difference. You know, we, we, we got an extra cat, an extra chair, brought in an extra chair, but it forced us to do some cleaning. We did some cleaning, so we got an extra chair and now the room looks bigger and more organized. You know, just a little bit of effort goes such a long way. Am I right? We, we need to understand this, man. And when and when when stuff gets unorganized, it spreads a lot easier too, doesn't it? You ever notice? Like, if you ever walk into a twelve-year-old's room, now I'm not saying somebody who's been twelve for more than one day. I'm just saying somebody who's been twelve for twenty-four hours. And if you were to walk into that room, I'm not saying what room. Why are you getting upset? Somebody else could have turned twelve yesterday. Uh, but if you were to walk into that room one day, you will see one section of the of the 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 bed head headboard. In chaos, in chaos, like complete chaos. But if you don't say anything about that one section, then the chaos is in the corner of the room. And less than, I don't know, a day and a half, the entire room is in chaos. And there's just stuff because it spreads. Chaos spreads. And here's the problem. Now, while we're thinking visually on all this stuff and, and some of you spouses are getting elbowed and nudged because the kitchen looks like that or the living room looks like that or, or your whole house looks like that or the yard looks like that or whatever. Here's the problem. Too many of us have learned to live in disorder and chaos. And we weren't called to live that way. 
Now, I'm not, it, I mean, it really is. I'm not just talking about your, your clutter and your junk. I'm talking about with everything in our life. Let's get back to a spiritual sense, right? In a spiritual sense, how much chaos do you have? And when you're in chaos, you can't, you can't tell me this isn't true. Do you really feel as connected to God as you would if things were in order? No. I, I would venture to say, no, understand this. I'm not saying God doesn't, God really does. This isn't like a, like a, like a firm statement. But I would venture to say, like, God doesn't speak in the chaos. And you could, you could look at it this way from a picture. One of two things is happening. Either it's so chaotic you can't hear God, which is why God tells you, shut up, be still, relax, calm down, and then investigate me and check it out, and then you'll be able to hear from me. Or you could say this, God really doesn't speak in chaos because the first thing he speaks is to bring order to the chaos. Think about it in Genesis. Just a clear picture. Everything is in chaos. God's not speaking, and the first thing he speaks is to bring order to the chaos. One of the first things that happened in our lives, as far as kingdom living, when we join the kingdom of God or get saved or whatever you know term you want to give it, God begins to bring order to your life. And the sad thing is, so many of us, and here's the, here's the problem, so many of us have grown up in drama that we get attracted to more drama. You know people like this? Maybe it's you. If you're thinking right now and you don't know somebody, it is you. You, I'm serious. You've grown. I'm just. You've grown up in so much drama that you are now attracted to more drama, and you like it. Now, some of us like, how do you like drama? And some of you that are in the drama are telling me, "Oh no, I don't." Oh yeah, you do, or you wouldn't continue to be in it. Because things you don't like, you don't continue to be in, right? We're we're attracted to it. God, God, God wants to speak order to our chaos. In Genesis, when the sin came, it sent the world into a tailspin. And God said, I want to bring order back to the tailspin and put things back. So peace is a byproduct of order. Now, now I'm not a doctor or anything like this, but here's what I've, I begin to think a lot this week about this whole disorder thing. I didn't mean to really get off on, on the order this, this whole long, but at least it gets me from saying all those, those names. So I guess that's a good thing. But, but here's what we need to understand. I think some of these panic attacks are a byproduct of disorder. Right? I mean, I'm not underestimating that there isn't panic attacks and I'm not underscoring how bad those are and how bad those feel. But I think the byproduct of disorder is the panic attack. And that's something so many people are starting to experience and go through. And it's scary. But the solution is so simple. Just bring order back to it because peace is the byproduct of order. Right. So if you want more peace, you got to get some order. So ask yourself this. You ask it two ways. First is this. Maybe you can jot this down. Don't raise your hand or anything like this. What is the first thing God brought to order in your life? What was the first thing that he had to, he had to, he had to throw the, the curveball and change back up to the way he wanted it to be? You know, you think some people, you could smell whatever their problem was on them. God had to bring order and, and get it back in order. Some people, people didn't even know what was at order. It was just a, a personal thing with you that you, you know, that nobody even knew about, but God, God got it. You know, one thing I can remember often, especially as we, we age and, and get with other believers and stuff, is when we'll start thinking about like a movie we used to like. You know, we'll be like, man, I'm going to go check that movie out again. He's like, that was a good one. You know, you, you remember all the goodness of it, and you start playing it, and about halfway through, you realize, I need to stop this. I didn't realize how bad this was, because when I was watching it then, I was in disorder, so the disorder of the movie didn't bother me. When you're in disorder, disorder doesn't bother you. When you're in chaos, chaos doesn't bother you. But when you're in peace... And when God is bringing order to things, then the disorder of things drives you nuts. Right? 
It, it's why. Now, now understand, we've we got to always I'll use a lot of mentions. I think it's so good. We've got to always understand who we're talking to. We've got to understand our audience. Right. But at the same time, it's why so many people, as far as dedicated believers, get so passionate about God's word. Because it drives us nuts when it's brought out of order. Right. It should. Some of you are like, I don't know. Well, then you're not in the word enough and you need to get things shook up in your life. All right. So 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 we need this. We need this. The second thing you say is this. What is God bringing in order right now? And if, you, if you're one of the ones who was thinking, no, I wrote down my first thing. And like that was all that was all God needed to do was the first. No, you, you need to come to the altar and figure out what in the world. God, God is always trying to get us back in line. I mean, I, I can tell you right now, there's been times when I'll start listening to a song and it would be like, man, I, I really shouldn't listen to this song. And I'll tell you, I don't listen to songs that's got necessarily bad words, but maybe bad ideas. You know, but but in that, I'm like, ooh, that is really an unclean idea, you know, to have. And, and, and we do it with movies. We do it with who we hang out with. We do it with jokes. Maybe even we just had this discussion last night with some friends, maybe in the way people dress. God begins to bring order into everything. I, and I believe, you know, in, in the order, your order of the order getting made right. Yeah, that's right. So your order of the order of things getting right doesn't have to be the same as my order. I, I don't want us to leave here thinking, oh, it's got to be. No. No, I, I think he got right at his order and is getting right at his order and, and you're getting right at your order and I'm getting right at my order. And, and God just he opens our eyes to see certain things at certain moments because he knows that that moment he's able to reach us. And if he's able, then it's on us. Either you're going to get it in order or you're going to go directly against me and it's on you. Right. So, so our, our order doesn't necessarily have to be the same stuff of order, but there should be things getting brought to order constantly. Think about how much more peace our marriages would be. If we brought them to order, think about how much more peace we would have in our child raising if we brought them back to order in order. Um, so 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 that's something you just need to write down and, and grab a hold of, because some of the things that God has brought to order, we didn't even notice were out of disorder. You know, we, we go back to that dirty room thing. You know, so, so if you if you show somebody one dirty room and then another dirty room, it, it begins to just look the same. Right. So it doesn't really stand out to you. But if you show them that one clean room, they're like, oh, I need to clean the next room. You know, then it, let, it makes known how dirty something else is and how dirty something else is and how dirty something else. Here's the neat thing about God. God wants to come in and clean your house for you. I'm serious. If we look at it that way, we, he really does. So not only is our eyes getting open to man, I need to clean this room. I need to clean that room. You now have God who's knocking on your door. Hey, I'm here to clean the place. If somebody come knock on your door, hey, I'm here to clean the place. Are you going to shut the door and tell them no? Or are you going to say, come on in? Right. Not a one of us are going to say, nah, we don't need you to do it. All of us are going to be like, yes, please come in. Take care. Can you wash the truck also and vacuum out the carpet? The kids spill a bunch of Cheetos on the back seat, and we're going to give them a list of stuff to do. We understand that's how God is with us. God, God knocks on the heart of our door or the door of our heart. Man, I said the order had an order, right? And I got the door and the heart mixed up. What's the chance of that? Right. So he knocks on the door of our heart and he says, hey, I'm here to do what I came to do, which is to bring order back into your heart and into your life. And in order to do that, I'm going to have to start cleaning, cleaning house. Now, here's what we do sometimes. Some of us will give God permission to go into one room and clean it. And then we'll lock a door. And then they'll ask, you know, it's like here. We, we, we have one locked door, really, because there's only one computer that's got important information. on. It. So when the bug man comes to spray, he always has to ask, hey, can you open this door, too, so that I can get into that room and, and, and spray it? And, and we do that with God. But if we keep a door locked when it comes to God cleaning house. What do you think is going to happen the next time that door is open? Let's look at it from a bug perspective. That's what really gets some of you ladies, right? 
We spray everything in the church except for that one room. I don't open that door. I say, you're not allowed in there. I don't care if you're spraying or not and getting rid of cockroaches. Because I know how much everybody loves cockroaches and spiders, right? So we keep that door locked. It's got a seal on the bottom of it. But the first time we open it, because it's never been sprayed, guess what comes on out of it? Cockroaches and spiders, right? Whatever other nasty bug you can think of that makes you go, ew, get a rag, ew. You know, I know how some of, I know how my wife is. You know, so um, as we do that, but think about this. If we do that spiritually speaking with God, we've got all this order brought to so many rooms and then we open the door and the trash just comes piling out. And what happens? It now spreads to another room and to another room. And then we've got the whole process. We've got to start over again. We've got to give God permission to clean house and we've got to give God to bring our life, permission to bring our lives to order. All right. That was way longer on order than it was supposed to be. We're still going to end on time today. Not like last week. So get back to your chapter four. Go to verse two through six. You see a whole bunch of names and then 21. You see this thing right here, and I want to show you God's, God, or Solomon's gift of wisdom and how he's doing this stuff. Solomon was proficient as a governor. Very first thing we list. So if you're, if, you, if you're taking notes, just jot down. I'm going to give you a title, like a job that Solomon does and how good he is, and I'll give you the verses to go with it. He, he's a proficient governor. He's an awesome governor. Look at what he does, two through six, delegating people. Verse 21, it even says it this way. I love it. Solomon ruled all the kingdoms from the Euphrates River to the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt. They offered tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. All these people are bringing tribute to Solomon because he rules over all of it. What it's telling us, this is the largest territory Israel's ever had in its history being united as one. And Solomon's got it all. And Solomon's not like this great military leader. He's not a killer. He's not a headhunter. He's just getting all this because of what David did and now using his wisdom. So he's a great governor, right? He has this great ability to organize people we see in those verses. Another thing he is, look, look, look at his cabinet. If you go through this list and study each of them, you've got religious leaders, you've got historians, you, you've got military people, you've got financial experts. You know, you have to do some homework to figure all that out, right? But, but all these people list into those categories. What's awesome to me, and I don't, I don't know about if you guys can relate with this, when you sit down with a bunch of different people, you know, if you've got a religious leader, a historian, a military leader, a financial expert, and, and, and probably even some more that I didn't list. But if you sit down with all them, how hard is it for you to understand and discern everybody's opinion on a matter? Because they're not going to have the same opinion, are they? Part of Solomon's wisdom is to be able to sit down with a bunch of different type of people, hear all of them out, and discern what is the best way and who had the best idea and what is the best path to take for an issue. I think that's amazing, right? They, they, they said in, in, in uh, one of the leadership books written about Abraham Lincoln, they say he would purposely get people who were going to argue to come to the same meeting. And he would just sit there and not say a word and let them argue things out. And then he would use his discernment to say, oh, well, there's the answer. Right. So he didn't have to do it. He just had to sit and, and have that discernment. Listen, Solomon does this. So, so he's great at this. Solomon's also a great judge. End of end of chapter three last week, 16 through 28. We saw how he was able to rule on a case using compassion, actually caring about somebody and, and discerning the, the truth. He's a great builder, which we're going to come back to. But look at chapter 9, verse 15. He's a great builder. He constructed the temple that was one of the most magnificent structures the world had ever seen. So magnificent. In fact, now, now tragically, this does get destroyed. So you're thinking, I'm going to go visit that. No, you're not. It, it gets destroyed. It's gone. You know, and I think if it didn't, it might even have been one of the seven wonders of the world. Because what happens, and here's how we know how awesome this thing is. You think, well, hold on. If it's that awesome, how do we really know? Because in the book of Ezra, you want to talk about feeling bad for somebody, right? Israel gets back from captivity. They try to reconstruct this temple. 
And they're doing, I mean, they're working as hard as they can. They're doing the best that they can. They're so excited. They think it's the most impressive thing the world has ever seen. And then these old guys come walking up. And I don't know if you've ever read it, Ezra, but these old guys come walking up and they start crying. Scripture says, and they began to weep. You're like, wow, it was that pretty. No, they began to weep because it sucked compared to what Solomon built. Seriously, read it and check it out. Can you imagine though, if you were, if you were the guy, if you were Ezra and you, you had your people and your people just built this and you know, your construction guys are standing there like it's happy. Yeah. Check it out. You imagine if you built something and you're smiling and you're showing it off and everybody who comes in that's young, you know, they hadn't seen the old one because they're young. They come in like, Oh man, this is great. This is beautiful. And then, you know, older people walk a little slower. So they come in at the very end very slowly, you know, but they finally make it there. And they just start crying. And as a builder, you're like, oh, man, it's all right. Like, I know it's awesome, but but you don't have to cry about it. He's like, I'm not crying because how awesome it is. I'm crying because it sucks compared to what Solomon's temple was. How awesome was Solomon's temple have been, right? It's great, man. It's awesome. So, so, so he was a great builder. He was a financial genius. You call him like the Dave Ramsey of his day, right? You look at verse 25. Look at chapter, you, know, you can skip forward to chapter 10, verse 14. This is Israel's, not only Israel's largest territory, but what goes, what goes with getting bigger? Money, right? So, so at this point, they've got unparalleled prosperity. So some of the stuff records it. And if you read some of the making of the temple and some of the making of other stuff, read how much it talks about how everything's coated in gold. I mean, everything. You know, we, we picked on, I don't know. Did you guys watch Shark Week? All right. Well, Mike Tyson made Shark Week this year. Like how broke do you have to be? To be an ex-champion fighter, but still have got to get endorsed to do Shark Week, right? Something like you really don't like doing and don't want to do, but you got to do because you're broke. And, and somebody's asking, man, why was Mike Tyson doing Shark Week? And, and I just stumbled because I thought everybody knew. So maybe since you guys didn't even watch it, maybe you won't know this either. I said, well, that's what happens when you spend $250,000 on a gold toilet. If you know anything about Mike Tyson, one of the first things he bought, I mean, he was a teenager when he, when he won his first million, man. I mean, he, he, was, he was nobody coming from the slums, and he gets handed all this money. So they waste it. They wasted. Same as some of our NFL stars. That's why they get in debt so fast. But he bought a $250,000 gold toilet. And I'm thinking like, this is what Solomon did. Cause, cause when you read, except for he's like financial genius. So he's not having any trouble whatsoever with it, but everything's coated in gold when you read about all Solomon made. So much so it actually says in one of the other books that silver became worthless because of just how much they had. I mean, can you imagine having that much of something? That something of value then becomes worth. I mean, it's crazy, right? So, so not just in government, not just in these positions, but chapter four, verse twenty-five says this. This, this is an, this is everyday people too. It says under his own vine and under his own fig tree. What's this verse mean? Everybody gets the new iPhone. Everybody's getting it, right? Whatever the new thing is, everybody's got it. It also talks about how, what it's describing is how much peace is going on now. If everybody's just relaxing, you know, in their own shade and their own vine and their own fig tree, there's no worry of war. Then there's nothing to to fear about, right? So, so we're we're going through all this. Then you get to verse 33. We'll go back over some of this stuff, but I just want to get you all the titles. He's a great scientist. He's a great scientist. Who would have ever thought of Solomon as being like this great scientist? But 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 what does it say? Look at verse 33 at the very end. So he spoke about trees. Oh, that's what science is trees. Botany. Thank you for saying that like I wasn't that smart and you knew and I didn't. 
I think I had to too, but I honestly can't even remember. <laughs> he spoke about trees, which is botany. He's got the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop growing in the wall. He also spoke about animals. What's that? Zoology. All right. So he's got zoology. He's got botany. He spoke about the birds. Is that still in zoology? All right. He talks about reptiles. That's like a, a byproduct of zoology. He talks about fish. My point is this. The guy talks about everything. He, he talks about everything in this thing. So you got history, you got zoology, you got, oh yeah, I did write it down. Or, ornithology. That's copy and paste is what that is. That's not me knowing what it is. Right? So then you got botany. I mean, you got all this stuff going through. And so I was like, it's one thing to be famous about and know a lot about one thing. Right? I tell people all the time, you can ask me any tire question. And you can ask, answer, ask me a lot of biblical questions. And that's about it. That's as far as we're going. Like any other subject, you know, I'm going to have to research it. Right? This guy, he's got it all. Like his wisdom is spread amongst everything, even in his writings. Well, you know, what does it say in verse 32? That he becomes a, this great author and this great artist. Well, it said that he wrote 3,000 proverbs. Now, he's not just writing proverbs about spiritual wisdom. He's writing proverbs about everything. You think, oh, I didn't know there was 3,000 proverbs in Scripture. There's not. The Bible doesn't even have all of his writings in it. That's just how much this guy is doing. And we need to understand how, how vast his, his stuff was. He's a military leader. So great of a military leader. Chapter 10, verse 26. Um, also, I, I skipped over. He's a commercial developer. That's back in chapter 9 also. So commercial developer, military leader. So much of a great military leader, though. Verse 26 of chapter 10, it says that no one in the world dared oppose him. Like, like he, he's, he's so awesome and so bad to the bone. Like, nobody even wants to challenge him. Solomon accumulated 1,400 chariots. 12,000 horsemen. Now, th these are like bombers for us today, guys. You know, if you if you accommodate that much stuff, like you're there to go, right? Nobody would mess with him. He, he gets he gets the first Navy really going. Now, not even as in defensive Navy, but if you study a lot of writings, the import-export system, Solomon's responsible for getting going. I mean, this guy is in everything. And if that's not enough, he's also the love guru. I mean, he is the love guru. So he wrote a book. Some of you are talking about his writings. He wrote a book, Song of Solomon. It's so bad. Hebrew boys weren't allowed to read it till they were 18. I'm serious. Think about this. Now you, everybody's like, I'm going to check that out now. I ain't never read scripture in all my life, but I'm going to open that book, right? There's no pictures. So take that away, right? But, but I'm dead. I'm, I'm, I'm joking about that, but I, well, there's no pictures, but. You know, but I'm dead serious. Hebrew boys in, in, in their Hebrew say we're not even allowed to read this book until they were 18. It was so intense. Right. But but he's the love doctor. Think about all this stuff that he's got going on. And if that's not enough, uh, when he finished writing all the book and, and got all this stuff going, it says that he that he sat down his pen, and he sat on his paper and he started writing music. How long did it take you to write a song, Wilson, for, the, for your brothers in the, in the CD? Just one song. A few days for one song. It says that he recorded 1,005 golden records. Wow. With a harp. So they probably didn't sound as cool as you guys sound with just a harp. But you know what I'm saying? But, but we need to notice this. Like this guy, his wisdom is just everywhere. And here's the point. You're thinking, man, why is he spending 10 minutes telling us about all this stuff? And ain't no spiritual insight on any of it yet. Right? Here's why. Here's the point. Solomon's wisdom wasn't just spiritual. And yours isn't supposed to be either. You're thinking something better. That's all I got. That's it. But we need to understand that. We need to understand because sometimes I think we think like we're supposed to be super spiritual people just in the church and like that's it. 
you know, we watch spiritual movies and that's all we watch. Right. I'm not telling you to just I'm not telling you to put trash in your system either. But I'm not telling like we shouldn't be this this exclusive club that everything about us has to be Christian. Right. You, you, you talk about them and I don't even know what their first CD is. But one of the coolest things I ever heard, I think it was Brander say what was we don't want to be now understand the whole whole sentence before you think negative. Right. We don't want to be a Christian band. Here's what he says. We want to be we want to be a band that's Christian. Had to make sure I get the order. I thought that was so cool. You know what I'm saying? Like that makes so much perfect sense. Like just because you're a Christian doesn't mean your gift can only be used for Christian music. Like you can sing good, clean music and be a Christian. And let's just be honest about it. How many kids would our youth and, and, and young kids listen to who were playing music, clean music, but happen to be Christian in the testimony they could give behind? That would get their attention, right? Right? Amen. Definitely. So, so, so that's where we're at in this thing. So, so God gave him skills and all this stuff, God's wisdom, and it applies not only to the spiritual realm, but, but to all realms. To all realms. And, and that's us. Guys, we, we should be applying God's wisdom to all realms. You get down to verse 22 through 23, just to show you how big and successful this thing gets, right? 22 through 23, you get Solomon's daily provision, what's needed, right? 30 cores. When's the last time you guys went to the grocery store and bought a core? Nobody? You know what a core is then? You know what one core is? Core. You, see core's <laughs> you sinner. Right? <laughs> All the Baptist people just got upset right there. Right? <laughs> since you brought it up, it's kind of funny, so I'm going to throw it out there. At the Can you guys backtrack for me just so I can say my line since Cliff opened this bag? So it's his fault if you don't like it, right? Thank you, Cliff. Right? <laughs> so... so. I have me watching TV while I was reading over some of this stuff, right? And I'm jotting down all this stuff about Solomon and, and all of a sudden got, and, and y'all seen like the, the Suckies commercial? Right? I'm probably saying it wrong, but you know what I'm talking about. Like the guy who's like this fancy guy who only drinks the Suckies, right? And, and, and I had down in my, in my first round of notes, <laughs> Solomon doesn't always drink beer, but when he does, it's the Saki. <laughs> we're, we're coming to the altar together at the end. It's all right. Right? <laughs> Back to cores, which got us off track. Way to go. Right? One core. Now, how many did he have to get of the fine meal? Read it. Verse 22 through 23. 30. Now, that's 30 of the fine meal. That's like cleaned up grain, like, you know, the, the, the good stuff, right? 30. 30 of them. One core is 220 liters. Oh. 55-gallon drums, right? Think about this thing. Now, now we gotta understand, how many is he supposed to have? 30. Some of you right now are thinking, hold on, 30 times 220. I've already done it for you. 6,600 liters of fine meal. But then it says this, a, a day. Oh, that's a lot in one day, right? Could you imagine running into Publix? Now they sell two liters, not one liter, so you gotta divide it. I can do that for you too, cause 6,600 divided by two is just 3,300. I took math in school while you took botany, right? So, so you got this going. So 3,300 two liters in your buggy walking around Publix. And that's not all though. That's just the first thing on the list. What did it say? Then you gotta have 60 cores of what? Of actual meal. So, so the unclean stuff. Right? So that's 13,200 liters. Wow. We're getting a picture of this? Because when I first read this, here's why I want to point out how much it is. I, I kind of skipped over that. When I first read this, I was like, man, look at that delegation. 
Like one, one, one guy, now not one person, but one guy was in charge of a, of a territory. You know, he's responsible for what? That, that month, right? Cause it says on the what? New moon, right? Some of you are thinking, well, when the sun came up, they went by the moon, not the sun. That's us. So, you know, so, so, so when the new moon came, new month, this guy's responsible for this portion. And I'm thinking, man, that's good delegation. Cause if one person had to do all 12 months, that'd be a lot. So like, they got off kind of easy. Then I started calculating stuff and I'm like, wow. No wonder one person or one group, one group is not one person. He's just in charge. Right. So that's not it, though. Then you got to get 10 fat oxen a day. Right. That, that's not it. Then you got to have 20 grass fed cattle. So for those little stuck up people to go to Hall's Chop House and can only only order certain steaks, that would have been theirs right there. I want the grass fed beef, the ragu or bagu or whatever the heck it's called that I can't afford anyway. So it doesn't matter. Right. And that's not enough. It says, well, you got to get a hundred sheep. And then, then it doesn't even list how many deer you got to have and how many quail you got to have. And, and all. this list is ginormous. Right? So, yeah, so I was like, it's lunchtime. Right? Yeah. So I'm thinking, man, like the delegation. And then I'm noticing how much. And then I'm like, what in the world is the point? Then you get to verse 24 and it tells us why, why, why all this stuff? Cause I'm thinking like maybe Solomon had a gluttony problem, you know, <laughs> like, He's a sinner <laughs> and he's eating too much. Right. But we know this is way. by the way, if you calculate it out, they would estimate 15,000 to 30,000 people would have been there to eat in this. You think, wow, that's a big dinner table. Right. Here's why. Here's why. Look at verse 24. For he had dominion over everything west of the Euphrates. We talked about that. Right. Uh, and from Tishas to Gaza and all over the kings west of the Euphrates. And here's the significant part. He had peace on all the surrounding borders. Any of you got like families that you love? You don't have to sound spiritual. Like, be realistic. Right? You, you got somebody, somebody be with me. I'm going to be honest with you. I have families that I love. They come over and eat. Or I go to their house and eat. Right? Why, why are y'all laughing? Y'all not eat with people that y'all love? You should eat with people that you love. That's spiritual. That's Baptist theology. Right? Eating's always good. But, but we do. And, and if you got a lot of family that you love, what does that mean? A lot of food, a lot of eating. So the fact that he's at peace with all these surrounding borders means that the neighbors were knocking on the door. Hey, Solomon, what's for dinner tonight? Well, we got some of that ragu beef thing that I don't even know how to call. What's it called? Oh, yeah. Wagyu. Thank you. Stuck up person. <laughs> wagyu. Sorry. Tie it by the ounce just for us poor people that don't know, right? <laughs> I have actually had it. But, oh. Uh, couldn't order it then at the restaurant either. <laughs> so, so you got people coming over. Now, any of you got, now I know y'all didn't raise your hands with people you love, so Lord knows you're not going to raise your hand now. Any of you got family members you don't love? Oh. <laughs> hold on, hold on, hold on. Y'all struggled to raise your hand with people you love. I ask if you got people you don't love that you're not at peace with. and every... Y'all got to get some order to your chaos. <laughs> All right. Do they come over to eat often? They come over to eat it all. Right? You do everything you can to avoid. Like, even if it's a family function that you're invited to, you know, ah, you know I got that one thing on Crystal's side that we had already told them that we was going to be at, you know, so it can't, can't be there, you know. Right? Here's the lesson, man. All this stuff, because they had all these people, peace costs us a little bit. But it's worth it. But it's worth it. Right? I mean, that's a great cost. 
6,600 liters of, of one, 13,200 liters of another, 10 fat oxen, 20 grass-fed cattle, 100 sheep, a bunch of deer, uh, the other word, uh, somewhere near means male deer. I don't know where my notes are. But, you know, all this stuff that he's listening to, I mean, this is a great poor. It costs them something. But peace costs, and it's worth it. Maintaining peace is worth it, right? All right, which here's what it leads to. So you, so you got a good view. You got, got good peace coming. You get stability. And instability, here's what you get. Look at verse 28. Should be on the screen. I don't know why I'm looking down. Verse 28, you get this. Each man brought the barley and the straw for the chariot uh, teams and other horses that were uh, required place according to his assignment. Here's what I want you to write down for, the, for this verse, right? Each man did what was according to his own charge. If every one of us do the job at hand we've been given, we can accomplish a lot of stuff. Right? If, if everybody was doing their job, and now that I don't, I told, I told Mike, so just to be fair, I think they played great yesterday, my Gamecocks, even though they lost, right? But if everybody would have did their job a little better, there'd have been a W at the end instead of an L, despite how well we played, right? Everybody's got to do their job. And it's no different than to walk with Christ in the kingdom of God. Everybody's got a charge, right? So, so here's our focus. When you say each man according to his charge, this, this is what I'm going to We each have a charge to fulfill in the kingdom of God. And we got to be diligent to perform whatever that duty is. So the first thing you got to do, if you don't know what your duty is, you got to stop and ask God, God, what's my duty? Right? If, if you were one of, one of Solomon's people in the kingdom and you see all these people running around with a job to do and you're just standing there with your thumb up your butt, you'd be wondering like, what, what am I supposed to be doing? Right? You would. You, well, I needed something to do. So you'd ask somebody, what can I do? I don't know. What are you good at? Right? Is that not what they would ask? No, no, nobody takes the, the guy who's 300 pounds and puts him in the backfield to run the ball. They put him on the front line. If he's 300 pounds, he can at least fall on somebody and get in their way. Right? He's good at something. So we got that, right? What are you good at? Solomon's court, all his officers, they had, they had a service to carry out, and they did so. And I think sometimes we drop the ball. Maybe even we go back to bringing the disorder back in. Well, we got a service to carry out and we don't. When God's given us a passion and we don't follow through with it. Now, now hear me right now. When we talk about this kingdom style living and we get back to the main theme of this, he has called some of us to go to work, whether it be in an office, in a, in a plant, in a, in a company, wherever. And he wills us to discharge that wisdom wherever we're at. And performing and acting like who we're supposed to be exactly where we're at. Verse 29 through 31. Solomon gets famous for this, man. He gets famous just for doing what he's supposed to be. That's why we call it worldwide famous. Look at verse 29. God gave Solomon wisdom and exceedingly great understanding. Oh, if he would have just stayed with it. Chapter 11, spill the beans. Chapter 11, he gets off track. Way off track. He's already slowly getting off track, but he gets way off track. Chapter 11. Verse 31. His fame was in all the surrounding nations. Wow. This guy, now they don't have Facebook, guys. There's no Instagram. There's no tweeting going on. There's no texting and phone calls. Like this is word of mouth by foot travel. And that's it. That word of who this guy is and what he's doing with the wisdom God's blessing is traveling so fast by foot that all the surrounding nations are now hearing about what's happening here, what's awesome. This is the fulfillment of the promise that God gave Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 28. All the world is getting ready to know about how awesome they are because they are gods. Right? God's property, not they are gods. G-O-D apostrophe S, right? 
Later in 1 Kings, I, I want to look at chapter 9 real fast. Later in 1 Kings, you get into chapter 9, look at verse 15. Chapter 9, verse 15, it says this. This is the account of the forced labor that King Solomon had imposed to build Yahweh's temple, his own palace, the supporting terraces, all the wall of Jerusalem, and then it lists three places. So you got Hazar, uh, Megiddo, like my wife said, and Gazar, Jezer, Gezer, Geyser, whatever you call it. Don't care. All I care about is the middle place, right? Because I'm going to come back to this middle place and just say, but here's what you check out. These three places in history, these were like the, the, this was it. This was the main trade route that everybody had to take. And Solomon's in control of it. So, so he's in control of, of all this. This is the center of the world. This would be like New York and London, I guess, when it comes to like traveling information and stuff. All right. And it says this chapter, chapter four, we just read it. His reputation extended to all, what does it say? To all the surrounding nations. That's verse 31. Now, now keep, keep chapter nine in that, in that, that city right there on the back burner. Because when we look at verse 31, then we fast forward to chapter 10, verse 1. I, I can't, can't leave this one out, right? I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna read over chapter 10. But chapter 10 where it says, the queen of Sheba. Anybody know where Sheba is by any chance? Alright, how close is that to Israel? <laughs> Good answer. That's the answer I was gonna give. I didn't have any miles or anything like that, but it's not close. But it says this, the queen of Sheba, who by the way is not close to Israel, right? Heard about Solomon's fame connected with the name of the Lord. They're way, way, way away from Israel and still hearing about it. Not only did she hear about it, here's what she did. And, and, and you, you, you should write this down before we read 10, I guess. Here's the, here's the big thing. Solomon's life shows us how Christians are to use their prosperity. God is blessed. And it may not financially, maybe in wisdom, maybe in not whatever. It, but it's showing us how Christians are to use their prosperity. How much do people connect our success with God? Right? Do, do we give him that authority? Because here's what it says back to verse 10 or chapter 10. And she came to test him with riddles. Now, she didn't pick up a phone. She didn't text him. She didn't send a messenger. It says in the rest of the chapter, which I'm going to read in just a second, that she got an entourage. She got her gang together and made the journey from Africa all the way to Israel and spoke to Solomon in person. And the first thing she says, I'm going to quiz you. You know, it's one thing when somebody like has heard about it. It's another thing when they sit down face to face and start quizzing you. Oh, yeah, you think you know it all? Well, let me quiz you this. You thought you knew about Wagyu? Wagyu? I'm going to butcher it all the way, so it doesn't matter. Never mind. Bad illustration. So <laughs> I'm going to quiz you on it. I'm going to check it out, right? So here's what she does. She makes a journey. Uh, she came to Jerusalem with a very large entourage camp. This is verse 2. Uh, camel, she's bringing spices. She's bringing gold. She's bringing precious stones. She comes to Solomon. She's asking him all these riddles. Now, this isn't like a riddle of, you know, what do you call a cow with two legs? Lean beef. You know, what do you call a cow with no legs? Ground beef. This isn't those kind of riddles. This, 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 is, this is riddles like, why do some good marriages go bad? This is riddles like, like why, why sometimes does it look like what's going on in life if God is God isn't really fair? I think she came and asked like some real, real life questions for him, right? And she's quizzing him. Here's what it says. So Solomon answered, verse 3. So Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was too difficult for the king to explain to her. Can you imagine being able to sit down with the queen? The queen of another area. She coming to quiz you on purpose, like trying to stump you. Like this isn't like, I've just got generic questions. This is, I've got questions I want to stump you with. And be able to say, I answered all of them with no problem. Like it, it was cool, right? Verse four. When the queen sheep observed all Solomon's wisdoms and the palace he had built. She came to see the place too, right? 
the food at his table, the servants uh, at, at his friend, the attendant service, uh, their attire, what they were wearing. His, look at this now. His servants were dressed so good, it caught the queen's attention. You notice this? His servants attire, his cupbearers and what they wore, the burnt offerings he offered at the Lord's, what he was burning away to give to God drew this lady's attention, right? It, t- it says it this way in verse, in verse 5. It took her breath away. I mean, this is like some major stuff, right? Verse 6. So she said to the king, the report I heard in my own country about your words and your wisdom is true. But I didn't believe all the reports until I came and saw with my own eyes. Indeed, I was not even told half of how awesome your wisdom is. Your wisdom and your prosperity far exceeded the report I heard. How happy are your men? How happy are your servants who always stand by your side in the presence of hearing your wisdom? Blessed be. This is a pagan queen. Here's what she throws out. Verse nine. Blessed be the Lord, your God. He delighted in you and he put you on the throne of Israel because the Lord's eternal love for Israel must be that amazing. He made you king to carry out justice and righteousness. Do we see what's happening in chapter 10, guys? I mean, I hate to get to chapter 10 and kind of spill the beans early on us as we're only in chapter four. But his worldwide wisdom had gotten so awesome that a pagan queen comes and starts bowing down and worshiping God at his place just because of the application of his knowledge. And you tell me you can't apply what God's blessed you with to make a difference in this world. Y'all notice he didn't call her to come by, right? He didn't say, hey. Why don't you come on over and let's talk? She came to him. Now, I'm not I'm not not trying to tell you we don't go to people, but I am trying to tell you we ought to be making people so hungry that they start coming to us. And when people ain't coming to us, there's a problem. There's a problem. It means you ain't giving them nothing that they want. Right. It's the fulfillment of God's problems promised Abraham. What did he tell you in chapter 28? Your testimony to be a blessing power so that all the other nations come to believe. This is like what starts worldwide evangelism right here, right? I mean, this gets the thing going. In Solomon, we get a taste of what the, the reign of the kingdom of God is supposed to look like. I mean, this is it. It's awesome, man. And God, what does God say in the news? I've promised to put this spirit in you. Wow, right? Where's that at? And I'm not saying, please understand me. You're taking notes and understand. I'm not saying the fullness of the kingdom is yet to come. Okay? That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is it is going to be for you. New Testament, Jesus says this. Matthew chapter 12, verse 42. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. What's he talking about? Sheba. We just talked about, right? And now something greater than Solomon is here. What's Jesus saying? You thought Solomon was awesome making the queen travel all the way to come check it out. I am greater than him, than him, right? John chapter 7, check this out. If that's not enough, John chapter 7, Jewish leaders, they get a guard, a, a group of guards, a, a lot of them, to go arrest Jesus. That if, if you hadn't read this story in a long time, you need to go back and read it because the wording is just great, right? So these guys leave, and they come back empty-handed. And, and the Jewish leaders are looking at him as they enter back, and they're like, well, where's he at? Like, we gave you a job. We told you to go get Jesus, and you're coming back without Jesus. And, and here's what they said. If you'd have heard the way this man spoke, you would understand why he's not with us right now. Right? Can you imagine how wise he must have spoke? Can you imagine what he probably called them out on? You know, those deep, dark secrets that nobody knows about? I wonder, I'm not saying he did, but I wonder if maybe he said, hey, let me, you remember that one thing you did? 
you remember that Coors Light that you weren't supposed to talk about? <laughs> you remember the Dosakis, <laughs> right? You're, uh, I know about it, <laughs> right? But they, that's their response. That's their response. They say, this man speaks with so much, like, we can't. Like, there, there's no way, right? And, and what, what, is, what, is, what does Paul tell us in the New Testament when he's writing some of these letters to the churches? He reminds them this. God has put Jesus' spirit in who? Where does the Holy Spirit reign? In us. So he's wiser than Solomon. He speaks with so much wisdom that Jewish authorities just, they just gave up on him, right? And that same spirit he took when he left and said, I'm giving to you to put inside of you, right? For you to use to your benefit. Paul's got a letter to the Corinthians guys, verse 14. This is something that ought to be written about every church. When, when Stephen, you know, talked about churches making a difference and, and sometimes them going the, the other direction, that's sad because here's what's supposed to be taking place, right? In, in Corinthians chapter 14, Paul is describing unbelievers coming to the church to check out the wisdom and the work of the church because they see what? The beauty in our relationships and the secrets our hearts have revealed is what the scripture says. They see how beautiful our relationships are and they come there to check like, how'd you guys, how you guys get this to work? Right? That's where that, so much so for uh, 1425 at the end of the, end of the chapter says this, and they will fall down and worship God exclaiming, God really is among you. What I love about all the stuff we're looking at, not, not that it always works out this way, but I love this. There's no great sermon preached. There's no like great biblical knowledge that you had to have to exhibit it into the people. All they're doing is living in order the way God called them to live. And queens and people are so hungry for it, they're coming to get it on their own. Like nobody's making them, nobody's begging them. You don't have to have this big flashy sign, please come to our church. You know, no. No, if you're doing it right, they'll come to you. Or they'll at least ask you some questions, right? I, th- I think chapter 14 is real similar to what, what the Queen of Sheba was doing. His spirit and his people to testify what? About the greatness of God. Everywhere he went. This wasn't, well, I don't want to get there yet. I want to go back to that, that chapter 9, verse 15. Uh, M- Megiddo, right? The, the Megiddo of our day. Here's what the Megiddo of our day is. That's the cultural center of what's going on in the world. Understand this now because this is big. The cultural center of the world. What I mean is this. Christianity is not just supposed to exist on the fringes. It's not this this exclusive club. It's an inclusive club. Right? That we, we should be letting people join. We should be teaching them so that they, they want to get in. Right? It's not our, our... You ever watch like some of the dumb Christian movies? You ever notice it's always like this Amish girl who falls in love? And, and, and you know, it's just always like the, the, the same thing. Why? Why? Why can't it just be like people... Why can't it be... A band that happens to be Christian. Huh? Why can't it be a tire guy that happens to be Christian? I mean, really, why, why has it got to be anything more than, than what we make it out of? Here, here's the huge, huge thing in this chapter, right? Christians ought to be in the arts, the government, the education, the legal field, and every other field they can get into promoting the kingdom of Jesus. And I mean every field. We ought to be taken over. I don't know nothing about, and I'm not endorsing her at all because, again, hear me. I know nothing. I don't even know her name. The lady that Trump endorsed yesterday for the the whatever, right? Just happened to see it come across the news. I checked out one thing that she was pro-life, and, that, and that's it. I don't know nothing about it. She could be horrible on every other level. But what if she could be somebody who would save somebody? What, 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 what if Christians would just start getting involved in, in every area? What if we didn't have to worry about sending our kids to school because of the corruption they get? Because the schools just got full of Christian teachers. Huh? Now, they're still teaching them 
worldly education. We need world education. We live in this world. I don't know why we're like, oh, no, we can't give. Yeah, you need world education. You live here. You're going to live here for a long time, okay? You might as well learn how it works here. You need the zoology and the botany and the ornithology or whatever that word I copy and pasted was. <laughs> you need all that. But can it be taught the right way? Right? What What if we could go to restaurants where, where servers were believers? Think about how different the conversations would be. Think about how different it would be the way we treat each other. Huh? What, what, what if there was more, you know, Christian people in the legal field? Right? Not, not somebody just out to like sue somebody and get over them, but somebody who really wanted justice. Like fairness. Right? What, what if, what if when God forbid marriages didn't work out, instead of us looking like the rest of the world arguing and fighting over who gets the toothpick that sat on the left side of the table that nobody ever used for a hundred years? Like, like, like what if, what if instead of that, we could sit down and actually talk stuff out like normal human beings and discuss stuff. I'll I tell you one testimony that just blows my mind, and she said it publicly, so it's not a big thing. That woman's best friend is his ex-wife. That's weird. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I don't know what you're looking about. No, not, not Doug's ex-wife. Doug, I don't know about you. Know. <laughs> best, best friend is Guy's ex-wife. God had to do it. Because there's no other way that could happen in the world, man. Think about what that saves. Because now you've got kids involved in stuff when you're talking marriage, right? Now you've got girls who can go to two women for advice. Like, comfortably. And it's not advice where they come to one woman, and she's talking trash about the other woman, and she's talking trash about the other woman, and they sitting in the middle like, what the heck? Right? You know what I'm saying? Like, it's good, meaningful from both sides as much as they can. You know, heartfelt stuff. Right? Why, why can't we have more of that? Why do we destroy everything we touch as people? Because we bring disorder and we bring chaos because disorder breeds chaos and chaos breeds panic attacks. Whereas if we would flip this thing around and get some wisdom, breeding organization and organization, breeding peace, all the difference that could be made. Right. We ought to be taking over these areas so much so that this here's what here's what I was really trying to get to. Why I went back to this city. I apologize. Right. This Megiddo. Anybody know where it's at in the New Testament? Armageddon, yeah. Armageddon literally means the mountain of Megiddo. What happens at Armageddon? Final battle. What, 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 what is that symbolic of, right? It's a battle of the cultures, right? Now, now, you study this city, by the way, and even before Armageddon, this city had more war in it than any other place in the world as far as recorded and agent. You know, just, just looking in the history books and checking stuff out, right? You check this thing out on a, on a map. I don't know if you guys have a map in your back of your Bible. Maybe you can flip there and check it out. This thing is like right beside Nazareth. What happened in Nazareth? Who, who was not born there, but who was raised there? I keep wanting to say born there, but he wasn't born there. Who was raised there? Jesus. Who began the ministry there? Who's coming back at Armageddon? Right? You, you, I mean, you telling me like that's just a coincidence that Solomon just happened to be like in that area? No. He's going to come back into the main area of culture and turn everything around. Same thing Solomon's doing. Some of you right here in this church and your secular jobs are in the Megiddos or, or the other places that, that culture is con- uh, controlled by. And you need to be making a difference. You need to. It's what you've been called to do, to imitate the wisdom of Solomon and to ask God for it when you don't have it. Solomon writes this in Proverbs twenty-two twenty-nine. And he's talking about, he says, do you see a man skilled? Do you see a man wise in his work? He will stand before kings. 
He will stand before kings. You need to seek God and God given symbolic. Inf- I mean, <laughs> Solomon information so that we can represent Christ. A, a, a cool story. Anybody know who Eric Liddell is? Liddell, L-I-D-D-E-L-L. Uh, so, so he, he trains. Actually, he was going to be a missionary. I'll give you his whole story. He's going to be a missionary. Him and his sister. But he, but he turned out to be this fast runner. I mean, the guy was super, super fast. So fast, in fact, like he gets asked to come to the Olympics. Like he's not, he's not trying out to get into the Olympics. He's so fast, they come to him and want him in the Olympics, right? So his sister gets mad at him. And, and, and she's like, we're supposed to be missionaries. Like, what are you doing going, going into this? And he tells her this. And I'm not going to get the wording right. There, uh, Chariots of Fire is the movie from the 70s. If you've seen it or Google it and check it out. Right. But, but he looks at his sister and he says, I, I'm going to be a missionary. I'm going to represent God wherever I go. He said, but God has given me a skill. And when I run using that skill, I feel like I'm fulfilling my purpose. Right. And, that, and that's the line he gives his sister. And I'm like, wow. Like maybe some of you don't feel fulfilled because you're not using the skill God gave you and, and, you, and you think you're supposed to be doing something else. Right. Well, he gets to the Olympics. He went. I mean, he dominates every single heat. He runs the 100, by the way, 100 meter dash dominates every heat. The final for that year in the Olympics is held on a Sunday. Now, we could argue the Sabbath is Saturday and Sunday is holiday or whatever. But this guy believes the Sunday is God's day. OK, but he, he, he here's my point. He's so sold out with what he believes. He tells the Olympic uh, board or whatever you want to call him. I'm not running. And they say, you know, Eric, we're, we're not going to reschedule this race like this. heat is held on Sunday. This is the main event. Seven or eight lanes, whatever it is. And, and, and if you're not there, we're giving your spot to somebody else. He says, that's fine. Like I got this isn't my main thing, right? So a king of Britain sits down. You're talking about having an audience of kings. This is where I was going with it. The king of Britain sits down with this guy. He's like, man, you, you can run, Bo. Like you, you, I'm sure he didn't say Bo because he's a king. Either. You, you can, whatever they're proper, whatever, right? So he's like, you can run. Like you got a gift, man. You ought to be using it. He goes, man, I, I'm not wavering. Like I, I believe Sunday is God's day and like I'm not going to do anything on that day. Like I don't care what. But he's like, world renowned fame, man. Like this is it. Like you're killing everybody. He goes, I'm not going to do it. So the king of Britain says this, would you be willing to run a different race? Now, I don't know if you guys have ever like trained for anything, but when you train for that one thing, like that is your one thing. Ask a swimmer, ask a runner, ask a, you know, shot. I mean, all that stuff like that. That's your thing. The only running event left for during the week, Monday through Saturday, where he can make his thing, right, is the 400. Four times the race he was going to run. Like un, unheard of. If you guys have, that's one lap around the track versus like a football field. Just so you guys understand like the difference. This is a ginormous difference of a race. He not only wins the 400, he sets the world record in the 400 and he's never ran a 400 before. They're interviewing this guy afterwards and he, here's his quote, man. I, would, I hope I get it right, right? He, 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 he's interviewed and they said, how did you do it since you've never ran that more? He says, I ran the first 200 as fast as I possibly could. And then I relied on God for the second 200 and he made me faster. Right. Like what, what, what an audience this guy's got, but he's using a talent. We need Christians like that, guys. We need Christians that are going to use what they got. You, you know, what breaks my heart. I mean, we did not plan him talking about anything that's on social media. What breaks my heart is when you see majorities and minorities, are they called majorities still? I guess majority or, or we call it, I guess that's us. That's so bad, right? The majorities of the martyrs, when they argue over stuff, both sides have great information. Both sides, both sides have valid points. 
But have you ever watched how nobody wants to hear the other person's side? Or when they're listening to the other side, let's be honest, even when even when we're listening to the other side, we're listening so that we can respond rather than hear. Let that sink in. You're like, hold on. What do you mean we're listening so we can respond? Say, don't you have to hear to respond? Yes. But what is your motive? Is your motive to really hear somebody's heart out? Or, or, or is your motive so that you can respond with a better argument than they got? We do it with everything. It's not just minority and, and majority kind of stuff, right? We need we need like some wisdom like Solomon where, where we can be the ones leading these discussions. And both sides can sit back and be like, Wow, did you hear what that Christian said? Did you hear what that did you hear what that ambassador of Christ said, that representative of the kingdom? Like they got it going on, right? But we don't see that. The church ought to be a place that's showing like healthy, grace filled, selfless lives where God is working into making the biggest differences. And people ought to be coming to us because of how crazy successful we are in whatever we do. Whatever we do. I'm not, you know, I'm not saying everybody's got to be rich, right? I, I, I laugh because culture doesn't even know what to do with successful people. They either put them on a, on a, on, on a, on, on a pedestal and then they tear them down because they're like, oh, they're so selfish, da, 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 right? Or, or they make up reasons why they got them. What if, what if we could get like Derek Carr? And this is hard for a Cowboys fan to do, okay, because we don't like the Raiders. But understand this. Derek Carr, well, up until this year when Mahomes got his contract, in 2017 got the largest contract ever seen in NFL football, $125 million for five years of playing ball. That's crazy. That's crazy, right? So so he gets this thing, and he's interviewed instantly. I mean, when you're the richest man in the NFL. He, he's, he's in, I love his response, right? I had to copy this one, so I got it right. He says, hey, what are you going to do with all that money? The first thing I'm going to do is we're going to Chick-fil-A. All right. Good. He says, matter of fact, now that I think about it, we can go to Chick-fil-A anytime we want to. And we can pretty much get whatever we want from any Chick-fil-A we go to. He laughs a little bit. And he says, he says, and all can decide the, the, the second thing I'll do after Chick-fil-A on the way home from this game is I'll be tithing to my church. God gets the first and the best. Now, this is his quote now, right? So they keep on pressing him. Come on, Derek. What are you, what are you really going to do with all this money? Like, and they, they won't let it pass. Like they're, they're, you know, they, that doesn't mean you. They want to push their agenda. So they're pushing and they're pushing and they're pushing. And here's how he ends the thing. He goes, you know, I really don't have a clue what's going to happen with all this money. I've never even thought about this much money in all of my life. I'm just excited. I love this line, man. I'm just excited about how much good I'm going to be able to do for other people now. What would you do if somebody wrote you a check for $125 million? Would you really? Don't don't answer out loud because you get yourself in trouble. You'd be lying, right? Huh? Think about it. If you had that kind, would that be your response? This guy's response. This guy's I'm gonna go buy whatever F two fifty I've been wanting. I'm gonna buy whatever camper I want. Uh, I'm gonna get every Bronco in every color before they even come out, so that you can't get them, right? I mean, he doesn't listen none of that. He doesn't say I'm gonna go buy an old one and drop a new motor. I mean, that's all stuff I'd be doing, right? Paxton's gonna get to pick out whatever he wants, and I'm gonna pay extra so he can have his license at 12 instead of 16. Right? Like I, I'm 125 million dollars. I'm gonna do whatever I want to do. Derek Carr doesn't do none of that. His whole excitement, and here's the neat thing. I guess when you quote somebody from three years ago, you can kind of check it out. This guy has donated so much money to so many different things. It's crazy. Like it blows my mind. Right? Like he, he meant what he said. It's not just saying stuff. He's outside the church though. He's not preaching sermons in a church, right? He's on a football field, right? What are we doing when we get outside the church, man? Do you, do you realize this? I don't know if anybody's ever checked out. You realize 39 out of the 40 miracles in Scripture were outside the church? It was like, oh, 
Only why I came to church to get my miracle. Well, you came to the wrong place. You got now this is bad theology, but you got one fortieth of an opportunity to get a miracle in here. You got thirty nine fortieths outside the church. Right? I mean, think about it that way. I thought this was going to be the place. No. Right? Here, here's what kind of stinks at times. Don't get me wrong now, I think it's good enough. But but we have Christians who the only time they feel God moving is when the pastor says something. Or, or during one of the special solo songs, where like, man, I just felt God move like never before. And that's the only time you feel God move? You got a problem. You got a problem. Because you're not here enough for this to be the only place you feel God move. Right? Unless you're moving in. We'll let you have a sleeping bag and we got running water next door and the water hose outside and you take a bath with it. And that's about it, right? Think about this. 39 of the 40 miracles performed outside the church. God wants to do big stuff outside the church. Through us. Through us. Lincoln, when he, when he was at war with Robert E. Lee, he finally gets, he's talking to one of his generals. One of his generals comes in like bragging. Same book on leadership. And he comes running in. He goes, Lincoln, we finally got Robert E. Lee pushed back to, here's what he says, back to their territory. They're south of the Mason-Dixon line. Lincoln gets furious with the guy. I mean, fur- like you think, man, that's, that's like big stuff, right? You, you pushed them back to where they, they need to be. Lincoln says this, you don't understand. It's all our territory. Is that not the attitude we should have as believers? Right? Do you think Jesus like has, has like guidelines set up? I don't think there's one square inch of the entire cosmos that they haven't even finished finding yet that Jesus wouldn't say is entirely his. Am I right? right because I was like, what if there's aliens? Well, then heaven's going to have some weird looking people too. That's okay. Right? <laughs> I'm, I'm okay with that. Right? <laughs> think about this, man. Solomon's life shows us what we're supposed to do with prosperity, where we're successful at. Solomon's life shows what we're supposed to do in the world. Does your success, do you use your success to point people to Jesus? And again, it doesn't have to be money. It can just be your marriage. Think about it. I'm not talking about like just stuff. Like, like it could be answering questions. It could be how you raised your child. It could be, you know, anything. Anything, right? Ask it this way. What impact are you making in the world with the wisdoms God's given you? What impact are you making in the world? Maybe you should, maybe you should say it this way. Some of you are thinking, I'm not making any impact. Why not? Like, why not? If you represent God, the one who made everything, controls everything, do you really want to tell me that he hasn't given you the ability to do something in the world that's worth other people being hungry for? Where Queen Sheba's would travel to ask you questions and check you out. Where where people from, from outside the church, like the book of Corinthians, would be rushing in with the answer of saying, man, what you guys are doing is just amazing. Right? Do we represent God outside as well as inside? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for, for Solomon's example. And I ask, Lord, that we're able to follow it. God, not, not all the way to, to chapter 11, unfortunately, but Lord, that we'll follow it here in this beginning where, where he's using your wisdom to make an impact in the world. So much so, Lord, that, that other people, pagan queens, would come and bow at an altar that represents you. Lord, I pray that we're making people hungry in the world that we live in today to ask us the tough questions. And that we wouldn't be afraid, Lord God, to answer, but we would either have the boldness to answer, we at least have the boldness to ask you to help us answer it. Help us, Lord, to move in such a significant way, Lord God, that we impact every area and not just in this church. In your great name we pray. Amen.